Grand, thank you very much. And uh, thank you uh, for coming, particularly if you've uh, made a special effort to come early uh, for these uh, pre-forum uh, sessions. Uh, it's an honour to be here with you. Uh, thinking about the subject, uh, can we believe in God in an age of science? Uh, we'll have uh, material broken up into a number of sections over our uh, two uh, slots together and there'll be time for Q&A uh, after each of the sections. Uh, so if you could help the, uh, the editors of the video particularly out with uh, keeping your questions for the Q&A time, they won't have to uh, edit those out of the video times, etc. So do make uh, notes and I look forward to uh, interacting with you uh, on the material sort of chunk by chunk as we go through, as it were. Uh, this material is based on an online course that I uh, wrote a couple of years ago for the college that I work for in Norway, uh, uh, NLR University College in Norway, particularly the Gimlekollen uh, branch in uh, Kristiansand, down on the south coast of Norway. Uh, and I wrote this uh, course on uh, the Christian uh, worldview, Christian view of life, and science in apologetic perspective. And you've got some uh, little advert cards on your tables for the fact that this course is going to run again uh, in the near future. Uh, the material that we'll be covering is about two-thirds of the material that's on this course. Uh, it's a 10-credit course. So if you're interested uh, after this in actually signing up and perhaps coming and studying, uh, it's all uh, through, the, through the website. Uh, and uh, although it says uh, it's delivered in Norwegian, it's written in English as well as Norwegian. And if they need an additional English tutor because people have signed up who want it in English, I've volunteered to do that. Uh, so you could come and study this and get some credits for it if that was something uh, that was up your alley. Uh, alongside that card, we have this other uh, giant business card of mine where you can find details about my website and books and some recommended resources and so on. So, let's get stuck in with a bit of an introductory uh, session and let me just outline the kind of material that we're going to go through over our two uh, slots together. Today, I hope to start with uh, some key concepts that will help us as we progress through to uh, look at assessing the, the so-called conflict thesis, um, that science and uh, belief in God are in conflict innately, and looking at um, the relationship between our minds and our bodies, thinking about that area of the question, what are human beings, of, of philosophical anthropology, um, uh, anthropos here, mind and body, uh, and then tomorrow we'll dive into cosmology and biology, uh, look at um, the Big Bang and fine-tuning and how they play into uh, some arguments for the existence of God. Uh, we'll look at uh, the question of biology and design in the context of evolutionary theory and we'll look at uh, intelligent design theory as well. So that's a kind of overview of where we're going, but we need to get stuck in with some uh, concepts that I think we'll find useful and that we'll draw on as we go through. This uh, time together allows us to look particularly, because uh, we need to, to focus down, because this is such a big area, we'll be particularly thinking about defending theism, that is belief in a creator God, in the context of our scientific spiritual culture. 
Uh, we'll have a consideration of how science offers both challenges and opportunities to the theological discipline of Christian apologetics. And as we get started, let me introduce these key concepts that we need to draw on as we go through. Starting uh, in the 13th century with uh, the theologian and philosopher Thomas Aquinas, he would have pictured uh, theology as the queen of the sciences, assisted by her handmaiden, philosophy. Now, of course, the Latin word scientia, from which we get the English science, simply meant knowledge or a, a discipline, a field of knowledge. And the study of nature that we would now in our culture call science was called natural philosophy, that is philosophizing about the natural world. If you want a rough and ready definition of philosophy, I'd say it's something like the wise pursuit of true answers to significant questions through the practice of good intellectual habits. But what is science? This is a, an essentially contested uh, idea. Oxford philosopher of science John Lennox says there is no one agreed scientific method, though certain elements crop up regularly in attempts to describe what scientific activity involves. Things like uh, hypothesis, experiment, data, evidence, modified theory, prediction, explanation, and so on. But precise definition is elusive. Uh, you should have access through the forum to my PowerPoint. You'll find one or two changes here or there as I continue to, to tighten it up over time, but don't worry too much about uh, having to take photos of the slides or get notes down. You should have the, 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 the whole PowerPoint, or at least 99% sort of the same, uh, through, the, through the forum notes. Well, here's uh, my uh, attempt to tread where angels fear to go and give a definition of the natural sciences. Uh, I think of them as uh, fallible first-order disciplines wherein humans seek to use epistemically virtuous methods. Um, epistemic is just a big fancy philosophical word that means how we know stuff, basically. Uh, virtuous methods of knowing stuff to understand, to explain and or predict as much as we can about physical realities especially by paying attention to how empirical experience can confirm or undermine such truth claims as we make in the field. A fallible first-order discipline where humans seek to use good ways of knowing things, epistemically virtuous methods, to understand, explain and or predict as much as we can about physical realities especially by paying attention to how empirical experience can confirm or undermine such truth claims. But science in the modern sense, the sense in which most people in our culture would understand it, I think really began to take on its meaning in the 19th century with folks like the empiricist philosopher August Comte who insisted that science properly practiced uh, 
could make no reference to divine action to explain any event or phenomena. If you mention God, it's not scientific. In his take on the theory of evolution, Charles Darwin followed in Comte's footsteps, assuming that any explanation framed in terms of divine action was, quote, not a scientific explanation. Now, see, this kind of definitional exclusion of, well, really any irreducibly mental causation, such as divine mental causation, from science, what we're going to call science. Uh, some people would call this approach methodological naturalism, and we'll, we'll, we'll hear this term again. This remains a very influential approach to thinking about science in our culture, although I think it is fair to say it's less popular today than it was in the 19th and 20th centuries. As philosopher of science Del Rach says here, science cannot validate either scientific method itself or the presuppositions of that method, the assumptions of that method. So that those who claim either that science is competent for dealing with all matters or that science is the only legitimate method for dealing with any matter are seriously confused. I like this quote from the British atheist philosopher Mary Midgley uh, who said, physical science is not a separate supreme champion outclassing history or philosophy. It has no private line to reality. In other words, science is only ever part of the picture. There are what I would call second order or philosophical questions about science and the significance of scientific ideas. Scientists have philosophical disagreements that can't be settled on scientific grounds, but which affect how they do science. Disagreements about things like, what is science? However detailed and accurate our scientific description of a physical reality becomes, such descriptions can't, can't explain why physical reality has the fundamental structure it has, or why any physical reality described by that structure should exist at all. Science, in other words, makes metaphysical assumptions and it raises metaphysical, philosophical questions that require metaphysical, philosophical answers because it's only part of the picture. Now, I mentioned earlier about our spiritual culture, our scientific spiritual culture. Now, everyone... I would say, uh, really has a, a, a way of life, uh, a spirituality, some people would say. 
Uh, I like to think of a spirituality as something that's made up of the, the combination of your worldview, your assumptions about reality, the, the ideas about reality that you believe or act upon, combined with various attitudes that you take towards those assumptions, and that combination leads you to act in a certain way. So this trying to kind of bring together, to integrate our assumptions, attitudes and actions into a way of life, uh, spirituality. Uh, another three-word way of saying it would be to, to try and integrate our head and our heart and our hands in life. This spiritual structure, if you like, is generic. But the spiritual contents can differ from one spirituality to another. So we might have a Christian spirituality, or a Buddhist spirituality, or a Marxist spirituality. But just as much as the Christian has things that they they believe or assume in their head and they commit to and choose in their hearts and that they do as a consequence, that also holds true uh, for Marxists and Buddhists and Muslims and secular humanists and so on and so forth. Uh, a culture, you can simply think of a culture as a corporate spirituality, a set of shared assumptions and attitudes and ways of acting. Um, often together with the, the artistic traditions that express that shared way of life. Indeed, the word art comes from another Latin word, ars, meaning, well, art, or craft, or science, or skill, or technique. And it's a word that overlaps with the Latin term scientia, which we already mentioned, meaning knowledge or skill. In a medieval university, a Master of Arts degree included the study of astronomy. We wouldn't divide things up in this way. We don't use the terms in this way. The terminology has moved on. But a culture may thus be or include a a scientific culture, uh, a culture of assumptions and attitudes and ways of doing things about studying physical reality, right? And at every worldview, every set of assumptions, every uh, what's a uh, big part of what's going on in people's heads in spirituality, their worldview, includes these two basic elements. What is real? The question of what is real, philosophers would say, ontology, the study of reality. What, are, what assumptions about reality do they make? What sort of things do they think exist? And the question of how do we know anything? Epistemology, that word again, how do we know stuff? Assumptions about knowledge. For example, um, here we have some coffee. We'll be having lots of coffee at ELF, uh, usually black. Uh, coffee is one of the types of things that exists, right? That's ontology. We know it exists 
via our introspection of our empirical physical senses. You feel the coffee and you taste it and feel the warmth of it and so on. I would also say that pleasure in drinking coffee is one of the things that exists. And we know that that exists via our introspection of our own mental states. So we have what is real and how do we know those two basic questions of worldviews. Well, think about reality according to naturalism or materialism. Um, naturalism and materialism are often used as kind of interchangeable terms, and I'll probably slip into doing that because everybody does it. Uh, more technically speaking, Naturalism says that reality is an uncreated, purposeless, valueless, causally closed system in which intention, intentionality, is either something that's non-existent, that would be hard naturalism, or supervenient, sort of dependent upon uh, and causally effete. Uh, not really making anything happen in the physical realm. Um, that would be a kind of soft version of naturalism. Whereas materialism, as the name sort of indicates, says that reality is, adds, if you like, that reality is a, a merely physical system. Uh, so if you were a materialist, you'd be a, a hard naturalist under this way of kind of chopping up the territory. Well, does reality really fit into the naturalistic stroke materialistic description of reality box, as I've put it here? For example, um, the reality that coffee exists, does that fit into the naturalistic materialistic box? What about the fact that we know that coffee exists through introspection of our physical senses? Does that reality fit into the naturalistic materialistic box. What about pleasure? Pleasure in drinking coffee exists. Does that fit into that description of reality? And the fact that we know this, again, via mental introspection, does that fit into the description of reality? Famous uh, American Christian philosopher Alvin Plantinga puts it like this. He says, a naturalist or materialist will be an atheist. But not every atheist is a naturalist. Naturalism is stronger than atheism. So naturalism includes atheism and more. You could be an, an atheistic Buddhist, for example, who believes in non-physical realities. Atheism comes from the Greek word athos, from the, the A, meaning without, plus the theos, meaning God or gods. God is not among the things that an atheist believes to be real. The Cambridge Dictionary defines an atheist as someone who believes that God does not exist. Now, some atheists, you will find, define atheism as a lack of belief in God. But A, this makes cats into atheists and B, fails to distinguish between atheism and agnosticism, saying, I don't know whether or not there's a God. So if someone says, well, I just lack a belief in God, you say, well, is it that you 
don't know whether or not there's a God or do you actually think that God does not exist? Which of those do you, do you think? So the, the cat here is thinking, I don't think I believe in God. I don't think any cat thinks that. But I don't think I'm an atheist or an agnostic. I just don't think cats have thought about it, right? <laughs> so they lack a belief in God. Atheist Kai Nielsen said, atheism, here's a definition, in general, the critique and denial of metaphysical belief in God or spiritual beings. As such, it is usually distinguished from theism, which affirms the reality of the divine and often seeks to demonstrate its existence. Atheism is also distinguished from agnosticism, which leaves open the question whether or not there's a God professing to find the question unanswerable or unanswered. But there's also how do we know? According to, and note this is not science, but scientism. Trying to use science, contrary to Del Ratch's advice, or what uh, uh, Mary, uh, um, sorry, the other philosopher that I quoted, names escaped me momentarily, said about not having a private uh, line to reality. Some people do think that about science. So atheist Alex Rosenberg says being scientistic just means treating science as our exclusive guide to reality. We trust science as the only way to acquire knowledge and it's about anything. Or um, atheist Peter Atkins from the UK says the scientific method is the only means of discovering the nature of reality. The only way of acquiring reliable knowledge. This kind of demand about how we know things that appeals to science, this scientific demand, is basically the demand that every rational belief, every belief to count as rational, must be justified by a scientific, and that generally means empirical, kind of evidence. That demand, I would say, is self-contradictory because it is a demand that can't itself be justified by science, by empirical evidence. And actually it's a demand that entails an infinite regress that can't be satisfied. It's also open to obvious counter-examples, I would say, metaphysical, moral, aesthetic knowledge. So, for example, okay, scientific knowledge, coffee exists, a clear empirical example, but again, pleasure in drinking exists, enjoying coffee is good, or this is a beautiful cup. Nancy Piercy from the States in her book Saving Leonardo says that the strict separation of facts from values like is good, is beautiful, right? Uh, whether justified by naturalism or materialism or scientism is the key to unlocking the history of the modern Western mind. People have always known that there's a distinction between is and ought between descriptive statements and normative or prescriptive statements. But in earlier ages, people thought both types of statement dealt with questions of truth. 
If you made a moral statement about what someone ought to do, it was either true or false. And under the modern separation that often appeals to science, that's no longer the case. And you get this bifurcation between facts, which are known scientifically, and values, kind of floating justification-free. So you end up, if you combine like materialism about what exists and scientism about how we know, resulting in this fact-value divide, you end up with a worldview like this, summarised by Alex Rosenberg in his book The Atheist's Guide to Reality. Is there a God? No. What is the nature of reality? What physics says it is? What is the purpose of the universe? There is none. What is the meaning of life? Ditto, I there is none. Why am I here? Just dumb luck. Is there a soul? Is it immortal? Are you kidding? Is there free will? Not a chance. What happens when we die? Everything pretty much goes on as before, except us. What is the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? There is no moral difference between them. Individual human life, says Rosenberg, is meaningless, without purpose, without ultimate moral value. We need to face the fact that nihilism, the denial of this kind of value view of reality, is true. He says, creating purpose in a world that can't have any is like trying to build a perpetual motion machine after you've discovered that nature rules them out. If this seems hard to take, he says, there's always Prozac, which is an anti-depression drug. And he doubles down on this later in the book. He says, what should we scientific folks do when overcome by Weltschmerz? Sorry if I've murdered the German. World weariness. He says, take two of whatever neuropharmacology prescribes. After all, that's all there is to your mental states. Your mental states just are brain states, and you can change them. Richard Rorty, famous postmodern atheist philosopher, said we should try to get to the point where we no longer worship anything, where we treat everything, our language, our conscience, our community, as products of time and chance. Now, Christian theology, as Alistair McGrath says, is an attempt to make sense of the foundational resources of Christianity in light of what each age regards as first-rate methods, so thinking well about the stuff that we think we know. Theology, like science, is a fallible discipline wherein humans seek to use epistemically virtuous methods, in this case to construct a comprehensive Christian worldview that takes into account both the books of special revelation from the Bible and the book of general revelation the world. The attempt to offer persuasive responses to questions about why anyone would commit themselves to a Christ-centered spirituality is a sub-discipline of theology called apologetics. 
again, comes from a Greek word, apologia, meaning uh, a speech uh, made in a legal context, legal defense in court was the original usage. Um, hence the title of Plato's uh, Apology of Socrates, for example. More generally, to give an apologia is to give a verbal defense. Uh, the Apostle Peter famously uses the term in 1 Peter 3:15. In your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense, a apologia, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Peter's command calls upon Christians in general to be ready to make an apology for their faith. First century Christian leaders like Paul, Apollos, Luke and John had ministries with a strong apologetic dimension. Indeed, Colin Brown recently argued that in addition to being works of ancient biography, the Gospels are works of apologetics. He says Mark was the first Christian apology. As other charges emerged, the other canonical Gospels addressed them. They too belonged to the genre of Christian apologetics. Second century Christian intellectuals like Quadratus, Aristides of Athens, Justin Martyr, uh, Athanagoras and Tertullian uh, addressed the Roman authorities in various apologies for the Christian faith, becoming known in the process as apologists. And apologetics has become an interdisciplinary part of Christian theology. William Lane Craig defines it very in kind of standard terms like this. That branch of Christian theology which seeks to provide a rational justification for the truth claims of the Christian faith. However, an ancient Greek or Roman lawyer would be well aware that there's more to a convincing speech than good argumentation, although it needs that. As uh, Kinghorn and Walls here say, God draws us towards a relationship with him in which we find our ultimate fulfillment. However the distinction is to be drawn between belief and a relational commitment marked by faith, the goal of the apologist is a relationship marked by faith. So they urge that biblical apologetics needs to be a holistic, kind of rounded enterprise. And I would agree. I myself have advanced a holistic definition of apologetics, grounded in that three-part description of spirituality with which we began. I call it uh, apologetics in 3D, like three dimensions. As a sub-discipline of theology, I view Christian apologetics as the, the art and science of helping people to be persuaded that a Christ-centered spirituality is a beautiful, good and reasonable stroke true life commitment to make. That is to say to help people be persuaded that Christian spirituality is at the very least no less and is ideally more reasonable and or true good and beautiful than any of the alternatives on the table. To recontextualize an image from the pagan philosopher Socrates, the Christian apologist is a kind of spiritual midwife helping people to deliver as strong and healthy a spiritual response to Jesus 
as they can muster. So I think thinking about science, and I put it in inverted commas to highlight this means different things to different people, offers apologetics both challenges and opportunities that we'll be grappling with. Uh, naturalism, stroke materialism, restricts people's understanding of the reality that is studied by the sciences. Scientism, as a way of knowing, restricts people's understanding of knowledge to the empirical methods of naturalistic science. But I also think that science can support premises in philosophical arguments for, or indeed against, the existence of God. And we'll again look at and grapple with some of those as we go forward. So I've um, dumped a whole load of concepts on you. What I'd like to do is give you a few minutes just to turn to someone near to you and have a little discussion about some of those concepts. And particularly, you might take a, a prompt from this question, what ideas or concepts in that introduction were new to you, if any? And then we'll do a plenary Q&A.